Hello and welcome to the second episode of One Christian Thinks, a podcast that examines current events, politics, worldview, and ideologies from an explicitly Christian perspective. I'm your host, Mike Hutton. If this is your first time listening, I simply ask that you press pause and listen to the first episode, where I introduce the show, my motivations, and give some guiding principles. This week's topic... The relation of Christians to the government, particularly in the COVID-19 crisis. As I'm sure you're all aware, as of right now, July 2020, the world has been dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. What was originally said to be completely contained within China and was to be no more than a minor inconvenience quickly spread across the whole world, infecting millions and killing many thousands. Most governments across the world took drastic measures to stop its spread, mandating quarantines and widespread lockdowns, shutting down all businesses except for the most essential, and banning any public gathering. Many people supported the policies, going so far as to claim that, even if one life is spared, no matter the economic loss, the policies were a success. But many other people questioned the policies, wondering if the unintended consequences were worse than the virus itself. Some people even claimed that the policies infringed upon their rights and freedoms, and therefore could not be legally enforced. It also raised questions for Christians. Does the government have the authority to stop Christians from gathering for worship? Is it right for the government to force us to stay inside our houses? preventing us from meeting face-to-face as fellow believers. From what I saw, there were basically two responses to this. One response was, yes, the government can do this. They're not preventing us from worshipping or fellowshipping with each other, we just have to do it virtually. It's for everyone's safety. Read Romans 13, it clearly says there that we have to obey the government. The other response was something like this. Whatever. The virus is kind of kind of blown out of proportion. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just I'm I'm not gonna listen. We'll still get together. We'll just stay under the radar. Maybe we'll sit six feet away from each other and it's all good. The theological justification for this position? For the most part, there wasn't one. In this episode, I'm going to use the COVID-19 pandemic as a starting point to discuss the relationship of Christians to the government, specifically in light of Romans 13, but incorporating larger biblical ideals as well. In this episode, I will not do a detailed evaluation of specific public policy. Rather, I will seek to answer these questions. Must we, as Christians, obey the government in all things unless they command us to do something against God's word? Or... Is there another way to look at Romans 13? In order to give credit where credit is due, the sources that I use for my research are included in the episode description. So, in my discussions with other Christians, it seemed to me that the majority opinion among Christians today is that we must obey the government, unless the government commands us to disobey God's word. But I think what most people don't know is that this has been a rich and colorful debate in church history. We could go all the way back to the early church fathers like Irenaeus, Origen, and Augustine. These men, and many more throughout history, 
had their views on the Christians' response to civil government. However, I want to focus on more recent church history, particularly the Protestant Reformation, with John Calvin and John Knox. In no way will this be a comprehensive look at the issue. Even the arguments that I do present here will be simplified and abbreviated, largely due to time constraints. So, this is more of an introduction, and if there's interest, perhaps I will pick the discussion up again in a later episode. Now, the reason I specifically picked Kelvin and Knox was because they had nearly opposite ideas. Kelvin believed that Christians had to obey the government, unless the government commanded them to disobey God. Basically, the majority opinion today. Knox, on the other hand, thought that Christians actually had the duty to overthrow a tyrannical government. How could these men have had such different views? Let's start out by reading Romans 13 verse 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, before we get into it, we have to understand the distinction between God's two wills, as described in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, and defined by Martin Luther. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reads, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So, the first will, God's hidden will, includes all that God has ordained. Taken from an article on Ligonier.org, this will establishes every event in history, every thought and intention of every person, everything that ever happens. Notice that this necessarily contains evil. God wills evil things to happen. This does not mean he creates evil or approves of it, but rather that he then uses the evil for good. An example of God's hidden will can be seen in the story of Job where God permits Satan to attack Job's business, family, and person. A large part of the book of Job is about Job and his friends trying to answer the question, Why? Why did this happen? They didn't know the answer, because it was part of God's hidden will. But, by the end of the book, we understand how God used the evil for good, developing Job's faith, and ultimately, ours as well. The second will is God's revealed will, which tells us what God finds pleasing. An example of this would be his moral law. God has ordained his moral law, which pleases him. The moral law is revealed to us through his word. It is part of God's revealed will. Now, 
Why is this distinction between God's hidden will and God's revealed will important to the discussion of government? Let's now look at Romans 13. Verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Later on, it mentions God has appointed the authority, he is God's servant, and they are ministers of God. Now, when the text talks about God instituting or appointing the governing authority, is this referring to God's hidden will or his revealed will? Let's consider God's revealed will first. Remember, God's revealed will is that which he has revealed to us in his word, that which pleases him. If Romans 13 is saying that it is by God's revealed will that he ordains the institution of government, then it must mean that God is pleased by the establishment of governing authorities. It does not mean that God is pleased to put individual rulers in power, because individual rulers may be good or evil. But it is the institution of civil governments, in general, that pleases him. Thus it follows that we must, in obedience to God's revealed will, establish authorities over us and submit to them. But it also follows that if those authorities use their position in a way that no longer pleases God, or if certain powerful people steal authority or take it by force, then they're operating outside the bounds which God has ordained. It is at this point that Christians have the duty, are obligated, to revolt and overthrow the authorities that exist. For biblical examples of God's people rebelling against the governing authorities, we don't have to search far. The book of Judges contains several stories that show a pattern in Old Testament Israel's history. The Israelites would disobey God, God would send a heathen nation to judge them and oppress them, the Israelites would cry out to God for deliverance, and God would send a mighty man who would lead the Israelites in rebellion and defeat their oppressors, in effect, the government that was over them. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak, all in the first five chapters of Judges, were people that God used to deliver Israel from the hand of oppressors. You could say that these examples were specific times of God's judgment and deliverance, and the same idea doesn't apply to us today in the same way. But, at the very least, these stories show that it is not necessarily wrong for God's people to rise up against oppressors. With these stories in mind, it would be difficult to make the argument that submitting to tyrannical government is part of, say, God's moral law. Now let's look at God, God's hidden will. If it is by God's hidden will that he institutes governments, then it must mean that he gives individual people power which they use to establish their government. These people may be good or evil, and thus may please or displease God, but that is all part of God's hidden will. If this is the case, then while God has given the individual person the power necessary to rule, he has not given the authority. The person may be evil, in which case their rule is unjust, and they do not receive authority from God to rule in the way that they do. Since God has given the individual ruler power, we must not seek to rebel against them. But since they do not have legitimate authority from God, we can disobey their commands. A biblical example of this idea is in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 2, 
we learn that God gave Nebuchadnezzar massive amounts of power. He essentially had the power to rule over everything. But Nebuchadnezzar used the power given to him for evil by oppressing the people of Judah. Yes, the oppression of Judah was because God had cursed them for disobeying him. But that doesn't mean Nebuchadnezzar's actions pleased God. Indeed, they were evil, and God punished him for doing what he did, as we see in Habakkuk 2 and Jeremiah 50. Nebuchadnezzar was actually punished for doing what God had ordained him to do. But, all that time, the people of Judah were told by God to not rise up against Nebuchadnezzar. They were to submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar's oppression, as it says in Jeremiah 21. In this example, we can clearly see a ruler who was given power by God, but not given authority. Nebuchadnezzar was given the power he needed to oppress Judah, but he did not have the authority to do what he did, because God ended up punishing him for his actions. So to recap, God has two wills, his hidden will and his revealed will. His hidden will includes everything that has happened throughout history, everything that God has ordained in the past, present, and future. His revealed will is best exemplified by his moral law. It is revealed to us in his word, and it pleases him. If the institution of civil government is ordained by God's hidden will, then it logically follows that we can never seek to overthrow the government, but we can disobey. And if the institution of civil government is ordained by God's revealed will, then the governing authorities must stay within the bounds set out for them. Otherwise, Christians actually have the duty to overthrow them. Now you say, hold on a minute. It still says that we have to submit. Even with all this talk of God's two wills, we still have to submit. If we have to submit, we have to obey. Theologians have had several different ways to interpret the word submit, again, depending on God's will. Again, I'm not going to do a comprehensive study on these. I'm just going to very briefly outline two of the ways that they explain that. If Romans 13 refers to God's hidden will, then we can disobey the government, but we can't overthrow it. In that case, the word submit means exactly that that we are to keep ourselves under the government of the day, keep ourselves subordinate to it, and not seek to overthrow it. On the other hand, if Romans 13 refers to God's revealed will, and we have the duty to overthrow the government if they go outside the bounds set out for them, then one explanation is that Paul gave the command to submit as a positive command to the Roman church specifically, simply from the practical aspect that the church was very small, and the government was very large, and if the church attempted to rise up against the government and overthrow it, they would have never succeeded. Now, John Kelvin argued that we must obey the government in all things, and if they become tyrannical, we must not seek to overthrow them. Of course, we don't obey the government if they command us to do something against God's word, but otherwise we have to obey the government. Notice that this position is not logical according to the theology discussed previously. Kelvin is effectually saying that the institution of civil government is ordained by both God's hidden will and his revealed will. This cannot be. 
Romans 13 must only be referring to one or the other. It cannot refer to both simultaneously. Opposed to Calvin, John Knox believed that the institution of civil government is ordained by God's revealed will. For this reason, he supported the overthrowing of tyrannical governments. As an aside, Calvin did have the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. An example is the best way to explain this doctrine. So, in a monarchy where a king rules over his country, the king would have nobles under him. And if the king turns tyrannical, the nobles would have the duty to stop him. But this is very different than a Christian civilian uprising. The practical side of this discussion became readily apparent several years after Calvin died with the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. On August 24, 1572, King Charles IX, the King of France, ordered the killing of Huguenot leaders. The Huguenots were French Protestants, holding to Calvin's teachings. Over the three weeks that followed, many thousands of Huguenots were murdered by Catholic extremists in massacres that were even supported by the Pope. Typical Calvinistic thought did not offer any theological justification for fighting back. But, according to one source I read, Calvin also assumed a few things in his theology, perhaps because at the time, the church and state were often closely tied together. He assumed that, first, local communities would share the same faith, and second, the government and the church would largely be in agreement. I'm a little bit skeptical that Calvin actually assumed that, because he clearly understood that the government did not always support the Christian church. But regardless... Neither of these assumptions were true for the Huguenots that were massacred. They were a minority living in predominantly Catholic communities who were actually being targeted by King Charles IX, the government of the time. Fast forward a few years from the massacre to Samuel Rutherford, who was born in the year 1600. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian preacher who also served as a Scottish commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. It was this assembly that drafted the Westminster Confession of Faith, used as a confession by Presbyterian churches today. What is notable about Rutherford in this discussion is that he wrote a book called Lex Rex, or The Law and the Prince, in which he asserted that it is the citizens of a country that consent to be ruled, and it is also the citizens who have the freedom to overthrow a tyrant. This was a continuation and development of John Knox's theology. Since this denied the absolute sovereignty of the king, many of his books were burned, and Rutherford himself was charged with treason. He died before being able to answer to the charges. Fast forward from Rutherford to the American Revolution in mid to late 1700s. The religious element of the revolution was inherent to it such that King George, III, King George III of the United Kingdom called it the Presbyterian War. While there were, of course, other factors involved, the American settlers saw themselves as fighting British tyranny, since the British were taxing the American colonies without giving the Americans representatives in British Parliament. This taxation without representation was seen as tyranny, and many of the fighters justified their rebellion using the theology of Samuel Rutherford and John Knox. Okay, 
So let's get back to where we started. What does all of this mean for Christians living during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I believe it means that we have theological justification for disobeying the government, COVID-19 or not. If Romans 13 is referring to God's revealed will, an argument could be made that the government has overstepped its bounds by forbidding people to work and support themselves and their families, which, incidentally, is also a command from God. Thus, you're free to disobey. And if Romans 13 is referring to God's hidden will, then the government does not have authority over us, even if they have power. Again, you're free to disobey. Perhaps the position that is hardest to defend is the majority position, that we must obey the government orders during the pandemic. So, can we as Christians just do what we want? No. We are called to something much higher instead of just blind obedience. And we don't have to go far from Romans 13 verse 1 to 7 to find that calling. In fact, Romans 12 in the latter half of 13 spell it out very clearly. If I can summarize it in one word, it's this. Love. A few phrases from the last section of chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Live in harmony with one another. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then chapter 13, verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Above all else, and even above government orders, Christians are called to love. If our response to COVID-19 is defiant disobedience of public health guidelines, is that love? If our response needlessly puts others at risk, or even strikes fear in the heart of others who are more afraid of the virus, is that love? On the other hand, if, in an effort to obey government orders, we fail to contribute to the needs of other saints, or we fail to show hospitality. Is that love? To make all of this a little more relevant, I want to look at the idea of a mandatory mask order. It was only a few short months ago, in April, that the World Health Organization and Canadian officials strongly advised against the general public wearing masks. But, as we discuss this, Several weeks after infection, numbers and death counts have peaked and are now steadily declining for almost all of Canada. Local governments across Ontario are debating whether or not to make mask wearing mandatory. The rationale for this change is that we know more now than we did previously. But that doesn't fit with the other policies. If initially we didn't know enough about the virus, so we did everything we could to slow down the spread, wouldn't masks have been a prudent safety measure at that point? Why, now that the spread has slowed and the death toll has essentially stopped, are masks going to be mandatory? It doesn't make sense. Either the politicians and experts were wrong, or they lied. Psalm 146 verse 3 springs to mind. 
Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. And then verse 5. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth. I've heard some Christians say that it is our Christian duty to wear masks. I can understand the argument out of love, care, and respect for others. But making it a Christian duty, is that really biblical? Another Christian might say that a mandatory mask order only comes down because of politicians looking to win votes. They're trying to garner the support of their constituents, constituents who live in fear. Even worse, they might argue, masks perpetuate that fear and make it harder for society to move on from COVID and easier for a government to overreach and move towards tyranny. Perhaps, then, they see it as their duty to not wear a mask, to show an attitude of courage in the midst of so much fear. A courage that, of course, only comes from their Christianity. I'm not going to argue either way. If I'm told to put on a mask, I will. Or maybe I'll avoid public places so I don't have to wear one. But I hope you can see that it's possible for Christians to be in either camp. I think that's where I want to leave this. Good Bible-believing Christians can be in either camp. There is solid theological justification for civil disobedience, even to the point of overthrowing a tyrannical government. While the majority opinion today generally aligns itself with what John Calvin taught, it seems that when we dig a little deeper into the theology, that position becomes much harder to defend. Calvin too, brilliant as he was, was just a man, and we must evaluate his teachings with the Bible. One good way to do that, which I attempted to do in this episode, is to look at what other theologians said. One source I found even claimed that a greater number of historical reformed theologians disagreed with Calvin than agreed with him on this specific issue. And Christians can have different thoughts about this. Christians can have different responses to the lockdowns. Christians can have different responses to public health guidelines. Is this a reason to divide between ourselves? Absolutely not. It's a reason to discuss, share ideas, come together over the word, and grow, both together and in understanding. For my next episode, currently, as we speak, there is a group of people who want to overthrow the current government and disrupt the social order. Is Black Lives Matter doing their Christian duty to stop an oppressive government, and therefore they need our support? Or, perhaps, is it an organization that threatens to impose a tyranny and thus must be resisted? Join me in a couple weeks as I introduce racism, police brutality, and Black Lives Matter. If you appreciated this discussion and are interested in more, I ask that you share and subscribe. Share, of course, to help start the conversation. And subscribe simply, well, because I have a day job. I'm going to try release an episode every two weeks, but I won't make any promises. Subscribe, sign up for notifications, whatever you have to do. Also, feel free to email me whatever questions or feedback you may have. My email is oct at allmail.net. That's OCT, which stands for One Christian Thinks, 
at allmail.net. Until next time, keep thinking.